Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, two passages of Scripture. One is Exodus <clears throat> chapter 20, and the other is Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so Exodus 20 and Matthew 5. You can turn to those. Uh, maybe you have a bulletin. You can just stick it in at Matthew 5. We'll cover off on uh, Exodus first, and then we will move uh, into the book of Matthew uh, to bring a conclusion to our discussion today. Okay? Um, so if you would turn to uh, Exodus 20 <clears throat> and verse 13, here's my, my brief introduction. Today we're beginning a new series called Necessary Conversations. Um, our focus will be on a short list of topics that may be uh, more difficult to address than others within uh, the context of biblical truth. But as Christians, we need to confront or address directly issues within our culture, even when those issues are controversial. Uh, because of the growth within the context of our church life as a whole, it's important that we address issues where there are, for many people, uh, serious and troubling questions. Uh, in these areas, there tends to be a lot of ambiguity and a lack of clarity, a lot of opinion. And what we want to be sure is that we, as the people of God, <clears throat> do not find our opinion compelling, but instead that we find the Word of God compelling truth to be shared with the world around us. And so our desire is to equip you with the Word of God so that you have a rational response to some of the difficult uh, cultural, ambiguous issues of the day that we live in. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, ready for every good work. And so our desire is that we would communicate the truth of God's Word to our church family through the pulpit ministry so that you know what to believe, okay, so it will affect belief, but it will also affect how we live. Okay, so that the aim of our discussions about things that can be controversial at times is to give you the light of biblical truth so that you know how to think and that thinking then should directly affect how we live. Okay, so today's topic is this, treasuring the gift of life. Treasuring the gift of life. Exodus 20 and verse 13 says, Thou shalt not <clears throat> murder. It's actually a verse made up of only two words. One is negating, and the other is telling us what we're not to do. So if I was to boil it down, it literally could be translated, no murder. Okay, that's the, the basic command. So I want us to, first of all, look at what is forbidden. I want to look at some practical ways that this truth affects our culture and issues related to where we live. And then I want to see how Jesus takes that command and drives it to a higher level that becomes transformational for our daily life. So first of all, let's look in this text at what is forbidden, okay? Now, I think it's pretty, you know, I didn't need a seminary degree to come up with this conclusion, okay? That what is forbidden is the often premeditated taking of innocent human life, Okay? Probably the, you could probably boil it down and say what's prohibited clearly here is the taking of innocent human life, okay? Often premeditated because when it gets into the realm of guilt in relationship to a charge of murder, it's usually based upon the intent of the individual involved. This is probably the least controversial commandment in the Old Testament, okay? You'll find on the street, this is the issue by which people justify themselves when they meet me. Okay, as a pastor, people, oh, I, I get, you get very interesting reactions, okay, related to language, related to, I, there's a whole list of things. But what people will typically say to me is, if you ask them, hey, do you have a sense that you stand as a sinner before a holy God? Most people will say something like this, well, I've never murdered. Okay, so it's, it's a command about which people feel good, right? Because the average person hasn't murdered someone, okay? And, and there's a fairly common level of agreement <clears throat> about this command. They tend to like it because it makes good sense. It's a good idea to not murder, okay? And all of us would probably say, well, that's, that's great. Now, 
the text also in the broader context will distinguish murder from the taking of life. Okay, meaning there are times when the taking of life can be justifiable. Okay, and I want to see if you can if you can get this. Look at chapter twenty-two, verses two to three. Exodus twenty-two, two to three. If it's, it says, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. Okay. So there may be times in a context of self-defense where killing is justifiable and not prohibited by the command, thou shalt not murder. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, it's interesting that the text goes on to say in the next verse, well, just I'll, I'll read it for you. Here's what it says. It says, but if it, the robbery happens after sunrise, the, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. What does it mean? It means there are certain circumstances in which using all of the force that one has is not the wisest solution for a situation. Okay? There are times when if you can get out of that situation and not have to take the life, call the authorities and they come and resolve the problem, bring the just uh, consequences, that that is the better decision in those circumstances. Meaning, just because I could kill in a situation doesn't mean that it is the best or encouraged thing. Okay, so there's a, the text moderates self-defense very clearly. It gives it some rationale and restraint. Okay, so it's, so what is encouraged is, or what is forbidden needs to be distinguished from taking life. Romans 13, 1 to 4 is another interesting text. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except what God has established. Okay, meaning God has established human government for the benefit and protection of humanity. Verse 4, it says this. It says, for the one in authority is God's servant for your benefit. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Okay, what is that saying? It's saying that the government at times is able to exercise the right of a just penalty against someone who is guilty of taking someone else's life. Okay, there are times that that becomes appropriate. So if you were to look ahead into Genesis chapter 9, you would find the establishment of human government, and there you'll find it says this, whoever sheds man's blood, and that's murder in this case, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the the image of God, he created man. Okay, so there are times that the government has the authority to exercise protection. And sometimes that protection may involve the taking of life. Eliminating a threat to the culture is a better way to say it. Okay, So, so that's distinguishing from murder is just killing. There are times that a police officer in the line of duty may have to take someone down in an effort to preserve the lives of those around. He doesn't bear the sword in vain, nor does he, you know, carry it to threaten people. It, it has an actual purpose, and that is to defend and protect innocent human life. Okay, so that's the distinguishing of murder from the taking of life in a justifiable setting. But the text also prohibits more than just murder or even the taking of life. The text also shows us how we are to love our neighbor by prohibiting reckless behavior that puts others at risk. Now you get into the context, and you've heard these terms, voluntary or involuntary manslaughter, criminal negligence, okay? That the command, thou shalt not murder, has other repercussions, Okay, it prohibits any behavior that intentionally puts the life of others at risk. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so let me give you a couple illustrations. All right, in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 29, it's a discussion about a bull, okay, with horns in that old agricultural economy where that bull is known to have 
exhibited dangerous or life-threatening behavior against others. If the owner of that bull does not take appropriate precautions to keep that bull away from people, and that bull gores and kills someone, the owner of that, of that uh, bull is liable for the death of that individual. That's called negligent homicide. Okay? So the text is bringing protection. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 8, it talks about someone is building a new house. And the text says, if you build a new house, be sure you put a parapet around it, a fence around the roof of that house. Why? Because in the ancient economy, there was nothing called air conditioning. Okay? That's a rather modern invention. And what would happen towards the end of the day and into the evening, people would customarily go up onto the roof of their house. They had uh, roofs that were flat, not steep roofs, but they were flat roofs. Since it was presumed that people would access the roof through the ladder you provided, you had an obligation to protect and preserve their lives by providing a barrier that would keep them from injury and wounding. If you did not do that and someone died, you were held criminally negligent and there were consequences that would flow out of that. Okay? Now, in our culture, that would look like this. I have a dog that I know has a propensity or desire to bite people. And I don't protect someone from that. That dog injures or worse, kills someone. I become criminally liable for that. Okay? The illustration about a fence. If you put in an in-ground pool, most townships have a law that require you to put up a fence and to put a gate there that cannot be actioned by a juvenile. If you don't do that and a juvenile walks into that area and is killed in your pool, you become criminally negligent, therefore liable. Okay, so you can start to see how a lot of the laws that we have today are rooted in what you'll hear people talk about a Judeo-Christian ethic. Okay, these commands derive from that. Okay, so the command thou shalt not murder has broader or farther reaching ramifications and implications. And I think the thrust of it is something like this. The command thou shalt not murder is really a command that means you need to care for people around you. And we'll come back to that at the close of our discussion today. Okay, so I want to ask this question then. How does the command thou shalt not murder apply in our world today? And the first two areas I'm going to address, one is emotionally very difficult, but I think sometimes we just need to speak the truth. Okay, the other one, I think, in the context of, of most people in the context of our church family, I think w would have a relatively common understanding of it. Okay, so the command prohibits killing innocent life. Okay, and I, so a couple thoughts that come to mind. One is the topic of euthanasia. Okay, that's a, 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 a politically charged topic. Uh, some countries, Norway, I think, was the first country in the world to pass laws that fully allowed that to happen. This text, I believe, prohibits self-termination, okay? Meaning the ending of one's own life. <clears throat> um, now, let me give one qualifier on that, okay? There may be times, medically, where a person chooses to terminate treatment, okay? So someone's aging, and they say, you know what? I just, I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I've had a friend that that happened to recently, where they just came to realize that, that ongoing with the treatment is just not the wisest approach, and they were willing to accept whatever God had for them in that circumstance. So we need to distinguish between terminating treatment and a choice to terminate willfully one's life. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's, there's a, a distinguishing. There's a lot we could talk about that, but I just, I just want to lay that out. The fact that each life in God's image, irregardless of its condition, is valuable to God. Okay, so that's, that's where we want to start. The second issue I think that this text addresses, which is I think a little more difficult for me to even address, is the topic of suicide. Okay, my personal life has been affected. I was thinking back, 
has been affected on three to four occasions uh, pretty deeply in a substantial way that I found soul-shaking by the termination of someone's life. In two of the cases, I was utterly and completely caught off guard. Never saw it coming. And it was a deeply troubling and difficult circumstance. I think what we need to say in light of the fact that this is a command from God, that to violate that command in self-destruction is a sinful choice. Because it violates this command by ending an innocent human life. This principle, thou shalt not murder, acts as a restraint against all self-harm, particularly the harm that would bring an end to one's life. Every member of our pastoral team has worked with people to fight for life. It is a fight for life itself. It is difficult, it is draining, but it is worthwhile when we are counseling someone against the thought of self-destruction. Okay, It is the loving and right thing to do, to intervene in someone's life. And to call them to love and value the life that God has given them and the life that God desires to use for His glory. Okay, so while it's difficult, we can also come with a strong affirmation. Based on this principle, we, we must affirm the value of a person's life and insist that taking one's life is not a righteous response to pain and struggle. The law of God stands as a gracious restraint and deterrent. Even a struggling, difficult, seemingly useless life to the person is worth fighting for and redeeming by God's grace. Here's the way Jesus said it. Jesus said, Satan comes to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Because of the cross, you and I can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, we can become children of God because there is hope in Jesus. And often this battle, this emotional struggle that people go through It's often being driven by pain in the life or by guilt in the life. We need to intervene with the gospel. And every one of us, if someone called us and said they were contemplating such an act, every every one of us would intervene and beg them not to do it. Right? And so there is a moral principle in Scripture that compels us to fight for the value of an individual's life when they are struggling with such a conflicted emotional decision. The other thing I want to say is this. It is not the unpardonable sin. Some churches teach that it is. The Bible does not teach that suicide is unforgivable. Okay, the blood of Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so there is abundant reason for hope in the life of every believer. The third area in which this uh, topic gets legs is the topic of abortion. And obviously, the first topic is somewhat laced with political ramifications. The second one certainly is not. The third one definitely is. There is probably not a more politicized issue in our culture than the topic of abortion. When I say politicized, I mean there is an abundance of public opinion about the topic. There is are massive levels of confusion about this topic. And my desire this morning is simply to not protect political turf, okay? If, if, if you hear me this morning speaking politically, you're mishearing me. Okay, it's not an issue that we fight for because of political reasons. It's an issue that we fight for because of the answer to the question, what is the unborn? Okay, that is the driving question. There's a great book about it. I have it on my desk at home. Uh, I probably should have brought it so you could see it. Uh, it. It gives a lot of information in helping to answer the question, what is the unborn? Because what we are talking about is the termination of the unborn. So if I'm going to weigh in on the rightness or wrongness of that, on the moralness or immoralness of it, I first need to define what the unborn is. Okay? Now, the other thing I want to say is this. If you want to get informed on a topic like this, okay, 
I'm going to just mention one website that you can and should go to to get informed, to understand what's going on in this realm. Sticking your head in the sand is not a biblical approach. Being informed is a biblical approach. Being informed in regards to what's happening and then being informed in regards to what God says about what's happening. Okay? So that we are biblically intelligent, biblically, uh, you know, able Christians as we look at and relate to this powerful and difficult issue. So the, the, the site that I would encourage you to go see, because it has a ton of data, it has photographs, negative and positive, that will put in front of you the reality of what we're talking about. And a lot of times Christians want to hide from the reality. That is not an approach that is biblically sustainable. We need to be honest about, number one, understanding what's happening. Secondly, understanding what does the Bible say about it. Okay, so the site is called Abort 73, obviously the, the date of Roe v. Wade. So Abort73.com is a site that y- you will find an immense amount of data, uh, very handled very well, handled very tastefully, but also very, handled very honestly. I want to tell you there are aspects of this topic that are not pretty. Okay, there are realities that are addressed in this area that are incredibly uncomfortable and disturbing. So how do we answer the question, what is the unborn? I want to do it by quoting for you from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. This is the psalmist reflecting on his creation, on his, his, his status when he was in utero. Here's what he says. You, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It is a a marvel. That's what he's saying. Your works are wonderful. And we know this more and more, don't we? By 3 and 4D photographing of children in the womb, we know that there, there, there is a marvel in there. Right? I was talking to some grandparents-to-be recently who were invited to the ultrasound of their new grandbaby. We're getting the most amazing insight into what lies within. And folks, those photographs and those pictures are simply true. They're not altered. They represent what actually is present. And they, for the moms and dads that get the privilege of seeing that, There is marvel, there is celebration, there is joy that comes from that exposure. David says, I know that you did it. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Probably speaking about the eve of conception. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. At eight weeks, folks, the child is fully formed in terms of the anatomical parts. But it is a marvel. And it is a mystery. You saw my unformed substance. All the days that you ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Meaning God, while the psalmist was gestational, had plans and purposes For that life created in the image of God. Right? And so that's foundational truth. To answer the question, what is the unborn? In Job 3 and verse 1, Job says, may the day of my birth perish. He's having a bad day. Okay? And Job is, and you, you understand the story of Job, and you understand probably from your own experience what it is to hit points of frustration where the prospect of being in heaven seems much more glorious than the prospect of being here. Okay, and Job has made the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. Now, what is Job talking about? He's talking about the fact that his gender was present on the eve of his conception. We know from modern, uh, modern science the, 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 the vast amount of data and information that is embryonic, Right? The DNA, the the type of laugh, the style of hair, the color of eyes, all those things are wrapped up in that very nascent life 
form. And the psalmist is just reflecting on it. His reflection and Job's reflection helps me to answer the question, what is it that is within a mother's womb? Jeremiah 1.5, before you were born, God says to Jeremiah, I set you apart and appointed you a prophet. Jeremiah had a calling, a God-given purpose on his life that could only be realized when he comes to full term, is born, grows, and fulfills that calling. It's interesting also to look at Exodus 21. This is just the last one I'll give you on this. Uh, Exodus 21, 22 to 23, tells the circumstance, and it's hypothetical, but it's the circumstance of two men get into a fight. In, the, in, in this conflict, a woman is injured, and her, a pregnant woman is injured, and her child's life is terminated as a result of the struggle. Okay? What the Bible argues is that those men are liable for capital murder. Not because the mom died, but because the child in the womb was expelled and died. Okay, that that should give you pause about God's view of what lies within. Okay? Matthew 120 says this. It says, Mary was found to be with child. In some of the Gospels, it'll talk that she was pregnant. But in Matthew, it says she was found with child. That is to say what was in her was an unborn human being. The Bible speaks of life at conception, about personhood, about gender, about calling, about purpose. This truth is often downplayed, and the rights and convenience of people are amplified by those who want to encourage this tragedy. What I want to say this morning is that the morality of abortion can never be determined by a person's choice or desire. It's determined by the truth of God's Word. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that determination of innocent human life in the womb is being prohibited. Because it is another human being. It is not the mom's body. It is a visitor who is being formed there by the will and plan of God for his purposes. And when you get to make that shift in that transition, that what is within is not her body. It's a whole new independent life that one day, very shortly, will come out and be expressed in the most beautiful and amazing ways. So that's the biblical answer to the question, What is it that lies within? What are we talking about? We're talking about a human being. The medical answer, I think, comes up in the context of the discussion of a miscarriage, of the spontaneous termination of the unborn. To a person, most people's response to that will be, especially on the part of the women, I lost my baby. Not because they're taught to say that, but because that is, the, that is the truth of God written on our hearts, Romans 2, that what has been lost has incredible value. And that involuntary response, those words speak volumes. Many of you, I'm sure, have been through this. I didn't take time to look up the statistics. I know that at 10 weeks, my wife and I lost a baby. Because of my, uh, can I say this, my ignorance at that time, of the full ramification of that, I did not respond as deeply and fully as I should have in support of my wife. The one thing that we learned through that circumstance as we dealt with the remains was the profound image in my mind of a fully formed 
little baby at 10 weeks. So there is something about that kind of experience that goes to the answer of the question that this is a life. This is a human being designed by God for His purposes. How dare we enter into that realm and do horrific things. May God help us. Every stage of loss of life is difficult. Very difficult. Most of you know that our daughter Jessica, our youngest girl, carried a baby to a full term. Went for an ultrasound and it was determined that the baby no longer had a heartbeat. She went through a process of birth for 16 hours. I think I can honestly say that was probably the most difficult circumstance that I have ever gone through. Because we believed that that child was a human being, fully formed with curly hair. Our daughter kept that child at the hospital because she wanted us to hold that baby. Which would have been absurd if I believe that on the same day that it lost its heartbeat, it could have simply been killed. And the reason we held a full funeral for that child is because that unborn child is a life. A simple definition of abortion should suffice from the medical realm. It is the termination of an unborn child. The medical community uses different words. I will not use those words because I hope that the truth of this topic settles into our hearts. The other answer I'll give you, the biblical answer, the medical answer, what is the unborn? The other answer I'll give you is that my, what I call the practical or pragmatic, just by observation. We, my wife and I, have someone very close to us who is very pro-abortion. Very And it fascinated me that when she became pregnant in her 40s and wanted to keep the child, that her whole life changed. She desired to care for that child. She took prenatal vitamins. She adjusted adjusted her diet. She went for ultrasounds, provided the very best for the child within, and went to full term and delivered ultimately that child and one more. It, it, my struggle is with the thought that a choice to abort redefines what lies within. That thought to me is practically speaking, absurd. A choice to abort cannot redefine what is within. It can't essentially change what lies within, and it cannot justify the horrific termination of a child's life. That's my practical observation. My cultural observation is this. Just because something is legal does not mean it is moral. Okay? And this applies to a number of things in the Christian life. Just because something is allowed doesn't mean that it should be allowed. And there, there, is, there is something in us, I believe, that, that kind of rises up against that. Okay? That, 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 that struggles with this. And we should. As believers, we must not be anti-choice. Or I'm sorry, we are not anti-choice. But we do believe that our choices must be guided by biblical truth. Okay? So we're not anti-choice. We just believe that whatever choices are being made must align consistently with the Word of God. 
Because that's what it is to be a biblical Christian. In our membership classes, we say to people, our desire as a church is to be a biblical church. We want everything we do and believe to be oriented to and driven by what God's Word says. That is also true in this very practical area. You know, it's interesting when you think about it, slavery in America was legal, but it was also immoral, okay? So just because something is legal, allowed, doesn't mean the Christian should do it, okay? Now, on January 5th, the Golden Globe Awards were held, very austere group of actresses and actresses who think they know more than you and I. Okay? I don't mean that unlovingly. It's just the way it is. One of the ladies who won an award, can't even remember the award, and I don't remember her name, and it, just, it, it has no bearing on what we're saying. Uh, she told how the choice, it was clear what she was talking about, how the choice to exercise authority over her own body in the most private ways was the cause of great progress in her career. Interestingly, I think she expected overwhelming applause. But even the Hollywood crowd responded awkwardly and tepidly to that proclamation, which most would think they would, they would applaud as brave. There's something at the very practical, pragmatic level that cries out and says that is not something that we should be celebrating or applauding. My personal question is this. If what lies within is simply a massive tissue up until the time of birth, and if abortion is just a medical procedure like pulling a tooth, why will this procedure never be aired on PBS or the Discovery Channel? Why? There are a lot of private procedures that are on YouTube and put out there. This is one that will never be aired on public TV for public consumption. It is kept in the dark for a reason, because the, the conscience of our nation would cry out against such barbarism if it truly saw it. And it would dramatically shift the political and moral climate of our country in regards to sexual activity, which is why people will not address this topic. Because the unborn is a member of the human family, which I think I could argue for from these four categories, killing him or her to benefit others is a serious moral wrong. I understand there are complicating issues in some of these areas, okay? If you want to talk about them, I will be glad to talk to you about it. But bad choices are not resolved by another bad choice. Okay, And we must be sure that the biblical directives and the biblical definitions of life are clung to by Christians. They're crucial and important matters. Now, I want to end our discussion by going back to the command that Jesus gives, but I want to go back to it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard it said... You shall not murder. Take innocent life. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, which signals a shift or a contrast, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who, who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is the idea of worthless, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, the word is moron. We'll be in danger of the fire of hell. How does Jesus clarify the command, thou shalt not murder, and move it into the practical daily life of believers? I've given you three ways that I think it applies culturally, for sure. But how does this command, thou shalt not murder, how does it aim to impact and affect our lives? 
Well, here's what Jesus does. First, he prohibits a violent act. Thou shalt not murder. Now, for most people, that's easy, right? Because I I think I can safely say that no one in this room committed a murder last week because we would probably all know about it, right? So at one level, that command, most people kind of brush themselves off and say, that's right. That's a command I keep. But Jesus goes further in verse 22. He prohibits violent emotions as strongly as he prohibits murder. In fact, I think what Jesus is saying is this, is this, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, meaning I'm going to give you interpretation of that command. You shouldn't be angry with people. You shouldn't wish that people weren't in your life. You should forbid in your life violent emotions as well as violent acts. Because the truth is, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So untamed anger in someone's life, resentment of people, speaking in a degrading way about others, opens the door for other more vile possibilities. And I think what Jesus is doing in this context is saying that the command, thou shalt not murder, does not have as its major force a negative. Don't do that, but love others, cherish others, serve others, right? That's the, that's the direction that this command begins to move in. What God is saying is, I hate the root of murder. Both expressions, belittle, insult, and ultimately demonstrate contempt and dismissiveness for the lives of those around you. When I explode in rage and anger at people, I am saying much more than I realize. And I believe that's the direction that this text begins to, to move in. I don't know about you guys, but I, when Jesus, the murder thing, I, I'm good. But the anger thing, I'm not good. I'm not. I just need someone on Route 78 to cross those little white dotted lines into my lane. And I, 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 I look at people like, which is to dismiss, it's to insult, it's to presume a fool. That's what I'm doing. And it opens doors for horrendous things. This happened to a guy south of my brother's hardware store in Harleysville, Pennsylvania on Route 476. Somehow the guy got irritated with the speed of the girl in front of her. He tapped the corner of her bumper with his truck. And off she went and died. That guy showed up at my brother's store to buy paint on video camera and tracked by credit card, was caught and arrested and held liable for anger that manifested itself in murder. And every person that heard the story said that is just, meaning he got what he deserved. How foolish, how reckless. That's what Jesus is saying to us here. We justify anger and assume ourselves to be righteous because we're not guilty of what anger leads to. At least not yet. Folks, I want to say this to you. If your expressions towards people in your life and in your family are degrading, if they ultimately are dismissive and insulting, you're in violation of this command. You're really wishing that the person didn't exist because you consider them an inconvenience or an irritant in your life. If you want to know that I'm guilty of that, you can talk to my wife. And I'm not kidding either. Uh, That's something we... We've got to confront, we've got to fight against. What Jesus is doing is he is encouraging loving actions. When we avoid hate by spirit-motivated love for others, by treating people with dignity and respect, we are believable when we talk about the value of life. Folks, I want to tell you something. If people know you to be an angry man or an angry woman, they don't care what you say about the profound life issues that we've discussed this morning. They don't care what you say and they don't care what you think because your life is out of sync 
with defending life because you're constantly dismissive of people around you. Okay, this is the call. Jesus translates this command into a love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. That's what Jesus does with this command. It is powerful. You know, last Sunday after the service, I was reminded of my own sinfulness in a very strange set of circumstances. I was talking to a new uh, family at our church, talking to the husband particularly. While I was talking to him in my peripheral, I noticed that someone was walking towards me. And in that circumstance, I, I have to tell you, I did not want to deal with the situation in that particular moment for selfish reasons. And I, I sensed just in my spirit God saying, treat this as real. Which caught me off guard. And as I began to respond to that situation with this individual that I thought would feel inconvenienced by this other individual's intrusion, we ended up ministering to this person, and the person that was visiting ended up staying with him longer than I did. I was rebuked as I later thought about that circumstance, thought, how dare you? How dare you fear inconvenience by a particular individual in the body of Christ? Because this command calls us to to love and value and treasure each life. See, the truth of this text is that Jesus aims to transform my actions and my heart. Don't murder, Tim. And get a better attitude about life. Gain an appreciation for the life that you say you treasure and that you say you stand for. Don't cut so quickly. Don't respond so arrogantly. Don't be so dismissive. May God help us. As Jesus works to transform our actions and our heart, may we submit to his tender working in our lives. In conclusion, let me say this. If I'm going to be pro-life in this abundant sort of way, full sort of way, I must be fully pro-life. That is, I must value each person like Jesus did. Okay? That's the thrust of this command. Don't murder means love, right? Don't steal means what? Be generous. Don't lie means what? Tell the truth. So come back to the command. Don't murder. Instead, love people. Value life. Treasure life as a gift from God. By getting involved in people's lives in concrete ways. In relationship to the issue, uh, the central issue that we're discussing this morning. The issue of abortion. We as a church family support a care net center in Hackettstown, New Jersey. We try not to simply talk people, we're, we're, and I'm sorry, they don't simply try to talk people out of abortion, but rather support an expectant mom through to birth and beyond. An organization that helps, as Roland Warren said at the CareNet Center banquet, that helps a husband to be a, fa- a husband to, or a man to be a husband to his wife and a father to his child. They do it via discipleship, by self-sacrificing, getting involved in the lives of others. The second way we can do it is by supporting those who are called to adopt. My my heart has been spinning. My mind has been spinning on how do we best give aid, help, and comfort to Terry and Stephanie as they take on this life-altering responsibility. How do we best serve them? I don't have answers to those questions. My mind has been running the gamut. If we're going to say we're for life, how are we going to stand up in concrete ways and actually do something that makes a difference in the lives of those that are choosing life or choosing to protect life in real, tangible, long-term ways? The last thing I want to say to you this morning is if you have encouraged someone to have or have personally had an abortion, which I know will be true for many within our church family, I want you to know that God's amazing grace can bring restoration to your life. And I want you to know that He can heal the pain of your decision and your loss. 1 John 1, 9 boldly proclaims, if we confess our sins without qualification, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be gloriously forgiven by trusting in the cross of Jesus, where he died to pay the price for my sin.
and yours in full. There's hope for you within our church family. There are a number of ladies in our church family that I am aware of who have spoken to me about their past history and relationship to this issue. They stand willing and ready to help you walk through a process of healing, understanding God's forgiveness, reckoning with the decision that was made in the past, and helping you to move from guilt and shame into the light as a child of God. And so if that's where you are today, I want to encourage you, step up, step up, and say, Pastor Tim, that's my life story. I need help if you need help. Or maybe you want to say, I could help others. I don't want to make myself available for that purpose, to preserve the incredible value of life as God created it. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, these topics are indeed uh, difficult. They stretch our minds. They test our hearts. God, if any of us this morning have harbored sinful attitudes towards people who have made wrong decisions, forgive us. And Lord, I pray that your abundant, amazing, saving grace through Christ would in some way become fully clear for someone today who has, has this struggle buried deeply within the past of their life, who has lived with regret, who has felt shame, and has been silenced by it. Father, I pray that your grace would fully redeem and fully restore and give a glorious hope to those individuals today, whether it's a, a man who encouraged a woman to have an abortion or a woman who, 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 who got the advice they had from a clinic and made a decision that today they regret. God, I pray that your grace would be abundant for them and restoring for them. Do that, I pray, Father. For those in our church family who have wrestled with the issue of miscarriage and the loss of little lives, Oh God, we, we do not want to be insensitive to that. We want to move into their lives and show them the love of Christ that he calls us to exemplify to them in this text today. So Lord, let us be fully, fully pro every life. And may we, like Christ, seek to save that which is lost. Help us, I pray, to know your grace this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.